0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Just ahead, The Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker speaks with Floodlight investigative reporter Pam Radke about Project Cypress, a new direct air capture initiative trying to directly suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But first, last month, the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans opened a new photography exhibit telling the story of Rosenwald Schools, a joint project between Jewish philanthropist Julius Rosenwald and Black educator and activist Booker T. Washington. They built schoolhouses for Black students throughout the 20th century, which, for many, served as their first educational opportunity. Andrew Feiler traveled throughout the South, collecting stories and taking photos of more than 100 schools still in existence. He joins us now for more on this project and this latest exhibition. Andrew, thanks for being here.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Well, let's start at the beginning. Who are these characters, Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington, and how do they come together to try to enhance educational opportunities for Black students?
1: So, Julius Rosenwald is born to Jewish immigrants who had fled religious persecution in Germany. He grows up in Springfield, Illinois, across the street from Abraham Lincoln's home. And he rises to become president of Sears Roebuck and Company. And with innovations like satisfaction guaranteed or your money back, he, helped turns, he helps turn Sears into the world's largest retailer of its era. And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what only later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery in Virginia, attends Hampton College, becomes an educator, and is the founder of the historically Black college in Tuskegee, Alabama, originally known as Tuskegee Institute. these two men meet in 1911. And you have to remember, 1911 is before the Great Migration. So 90% of African-Americans live in the South. And public schools for African-Americans are mostly shacks with a fraction of the funding provided for the education of white children. Many jurisdictions do not even have public schools for African-Americans. And in 1912, they start this program that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. And from 1912 to 1937, this program builds 4,978 schools across 15 southern and border states. And the results are transformative. That's
0: so remarkable. Well, what can you tell us about these schools? Where were they? How big were they? How are they funded? And were there any famous alumni that came from Rosenwald Schools?
1: So there are two economists in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago who have done five studies of Rosenwald schools. In fact, I was just in, co- in, in contact with them, and they were actually about to release their sixth study. And what their research shows is that prior to World War I, there was a large and persistent black-white education gap in the South. That gap closes precipitously between World War I and World War II, and the single greatest driver of that achievement, and it is an achievement, is Rosenwald schools. In addition, many of the leaders and foot soldiers of the civil rights movement to come come through these schools, Medgar Evers, Maya Angelou, multiple members of the Little Rock Nine who integrate Little Rock Central High and Congressman John Lewis, who wrote this glorious introduction to my book, all went to Rosenwald schools.
0: Wow. Well, of course, Julius Rosenwald himself was not black and he is Jewish, Why do you think he was so invested in this cause, in in Black advancement through education?
1: So Rosenwald sees um, America as a safe haven from anti-Semitism. And he sees that safe haven weakened by how America treats her African-American citizens. And he says, I believe in America, but I do not see how America could go forward if part of her people are left behind. And that's the origin of his commitment to civil rights and his relationship, his friendship, his partnership with Booker T. Washington is one of the earliest collaborations between blacks and Jews and the cause of civil rights and sets up and and establishes this foundation that blossoms during the civil rights movement with with people like Abraham Joshua Heschel with his white beard flowing, marching arm in arm with Dr. King and who famously says that when he marched With Dr. King, it felt like his legs were praying.
0: Wow. We're speaking with Andrew Feiler, a photographer whose latest exhibit featuring photos and stories about Rosenwald schools is now open to the public at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans. Well, tell us a bit about your project. Where did you travel? What were some of the schools that you saw? And what are they like today? Are any still functioning as schools or are they used for something else? What's going on?
1: So I had never heard of Rosenwald schools uh, until February of 2015, when I found myself at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who was an African-American preservationist. And she was the first person to tell me about Rosenwald schools. And the story shocked me. I'm a fifth generation Jewish southerner. Uh, I have been a, a civic activist my entire life. The pillars of this story are the pillars of my life. How could I have never heard of Rosenwald schools? So I came home and I Googled them, and I found that while there was a number of books on the topic, there was not a comprehensive photographic account of the program. And I set out to do exactly that. And over the next three and a half years, I drove 25,000 miles across all 15 of the program states. Of the original 4,978 Rosenwald schools, only about 500 survive. Only half of those have been restored. I shot 105 of the surviving schools. Uh, and the result is this is this book and this exhibition i knew this was an extraordinary story it was not clear from the outset how to shoot it visually and so i started out shooting exteriors of schools one teacher schools two teacher schools three teacher schools bought these small white clapboard buildings by the end of the program they're building one two and three story red brick buildings but when i found out that only half of the surviving schools had been restored I realized that there is this historic preservation imperative, imperative, this adaptive reuse imperative. Most of these schools were too small to continue to be in use for educational facilities today. In fact, of the 105 schools that I went to, only five are still in use for educational Mm -hmm. purposes. And so to tell that narrative, the adaptive reuse and historic preservation imperative, I had to get inside. And suddenly I needed permission. And that's when I meet all of these extraordinary people, former students, former teachers, preservationists, and I bring their stories into this narrative with portraiture.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those photos that viewers will find in the museum. Are there any that really stick out to you that you can give us some extra insight on?
1: So there is a, a portrait of two African-American men in their in eighties um, in inside of a Rosenwald school. This is the K. Rose School in Sumner County, Tennessee. There's a portrait of Julius Rosenwald that hangs above the doorway that has hung in that spot since the schoolhouse opened in 1923. These are brothers Frank and Charles Brinkley. They both attended this school. They both went to college. They both went to graduate school. They both became educators. Frank became a high school math and science teacher. Charles became a middle school principal. They have four sisters. All of them came through this school. All of them went to college. These six siblings had 10 children. All 10 children went to college. That legacy may not have happened if it were not for the Rosenwald Schools Program and this partnership between Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington.
0: Wow. Well, of course, these photos, these stories, they involve talking with people. So who are some of the people that you spoke with for this project? And what were the stories that you learned from them? How did they contribute?
1: So I'll tell you two stories in particular. Um, there is another portrait inside the Hopewell School in Bastrop County, Texas. These two elderly African Americans are holding up this ex- this old photograph from the 19th century in this exquisite gilt frame. That photograph is of Sophia and Martin McDonald. They were born into slavery, and upon emancipation they started raising farm animals. They acquired they acquired some land. They acquired some more land. They eventually acquired 1200 acres. And when the Rosenwald School's program came to Bastrop County, Texas in 1919, the family donated two acres of land for the school. Its first teacher was their daughter, and one of her first students is her daughter, Sophia Williams, who's shown inside the Hopewell School holding up this 19th century portrait of her, of her grandparents. Her husband, Elroy Williams, on the opposite side holding up this photograph, also went to a Rosenwald School in Bastrop County, Texas. They went off to college, they came back, had an entire career as educators in Bastrop County. And at the moment this photograph was taken, they were in the final stages of restoring this schoolhouse. And I found this story time and time again, students who become teachers who become the keepers of the flame of history and memory in their community and lead these efforts to preserve these schools and to preserve this history and to tell these stories. And the essence of this story is the role that education has played, not just an uplift of African-Americans, but as the on-ramp to the American middle class for all Americans.
0: Wow. Well, As you mentioned, you yourself are a fifth generation Jewish southerner. And it strikes me that you're also from Georgia, which, well, that's where the story of Leo Frank took place, the Jewish manager of the Atlanta pencil factory who was lynched. And as tragic and awful as that event was, I think for many members of the Jewish community, it was this awakening into how awful this crime of lynching was and in many ways, really brought Jewish and Black communities together. It's what started the Anti-Defamation League. I'm wondering how you see your identity coming into play with this work. How are you impacted on this journey as a Jew, a Southerner, and an artist?
1: I have been a serious photographer most of my life. But about a dozen years ago, I started down this path of taking my work more seriously and mercifully being taken more seriously. And one of the things that I had to sort out is what is my voice as a photographer? I have been deeply involved in the nonprofit life of my community. I have been deeply involved in the political life of my community. And what I found was that the topics that I was drawn to were really an extension of my civic voice. To put this current project into context, as I think of myself, as as I come to this work as an activist, which is about, this work is, my work is fundamentally about bringing people into essential stories in American history using photographs and stories. And there's one thing about this story that speaks to me specifically as an activist. Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington are building schools for African-American children in 1912 America, in deeply segregated Jim Crow America. That is a deeply optimistic act. That is a multi-generational act. And I find great power in this combination of optimism and long-term thinking. And indeed, for everything Congressman Lewis had been through, this was at the heart of his philosophy. He would say with great frequency, be hopeful, be optimistic, Our work is not the work of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the work of a lifetime. To to me, the essence of this project is to be optimistic, to think long term, and in the immortal words of John Lewis, make good trouble.
0: Andrew Feiler, photographer whose work on the Rosenwald schools can be found at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans now through April 21st, 2024. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. To combat climate change, Louisiana has been at the center of a movement to capture carbon produced by industrial plants and store it underground. Now, the urgent need to lower planet warming emissions has companies looking to vacuum carbon dioxide directly out of the air as well. A project proposed in southwest Louisiana would be one of the first in the country to do just that. The Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker spoke with Floodlight investigative reporter Pam Radke to learn more about the $600 million project and the national push to capture carbon. So,
3: Pam, could you start just by telling us what this Project Cypress proposal includes? You know, where is it planned and who's spearheading it?
2: So, Project Cypress is one of two direct air capture hubs that the Department of Energy is funding. Um, The funding announcement was announced earlier this year. One is in southwest Louisiana in Calcasieu Parish, and the other is in Texas on the King Ranch. So, uh, Project Cypress would aims to capture 1 million tons of carbon directly from the air. So that's just kind of like sucking the ambient air that we're all breathing and then sucking the carbon dioxide out. There are two technologies that are going to be used. One just uses filters basically to capture the CO2 and then another technology um, captures the CO2 and then mixes it to create a limestone. Then that carbon dioxide would be piped and stored someplace. And with Project Cypress, it's going to be stored in, uh, you know, around Calcasieu Parish in that area.
3: And why is this kind of project being planned in Calcasieu Parish specifically?
2: Yeah, so this is interesting. There were several proposals to DOE and DOE through the, um, the Infrastructure Act uh, gave about $3.5 to fund four of these projects. The two projects that were announced. Um, the one in Texas and the one in Louisiana, are on vast swaths of land owned by a single landowner. So in uh, in Louisiana, it's the stream family, and they have a subsidiary called the Gulf Coast Sequestration. So it seems like it makes it easier if it's on one plot of land, because they don't have to negotiate with multiple landowners. Battelle, which is managing Project Cypress, says that It's also the best place, like geologically, to store some of the carbon. So that's one of the one of the reasons to do it in that location.
3: Okay. Yes. So you mentioned Battelle, which is one of the three companies that are involved in this project. There's also Climeworks Corporation and Heirloom Carbon Technologies. Plus, you know, the DOE, as you mentioned, is. providing a lot of funding behind this. We know that they have huge goals of capturing a lot of carbon, but can you talk about some of the risks that could be involved with this?
2: As far as like capturing the carbon for the direct air capture, I don't know that there is a risk. There is a debate that direct air capture should be the last thing that we do because it's energy intensive to capture the carbon. And then down the line, the potential of a pipeline bursting and uh, potentially asphyxiating anyone around it. And then there's been debate about, you know, whether that carbon's going to stay underground and if, you know, it's going to affect groundwater. I I went to a a hearing, the DOE and Battelle had a hearing in November and like in Sulphur about this Project Cypress proposal and the citizens are really upset, and it's partially about the risk, but it's basically they just don't trust the DOE, they don't trust industry, they've seen all this oil and gas come through, Um, and they, even though DOE and Battelle are are really trying very hard to include the community in their debate and their discussions about this, um, the the local community, rightfully so, is very skeptical about this. And they are concerned that the carbon's going to come back up. And they are concerned about the additional industry. And in general, the biggest concern, I think, from a lot of people is that it's just going to allow the fossil fuel industry to continue to operate as normal by saying that uh, we're capturing carbon. So, you know, what what's the harm of us continuing to burn these fossil fuels? But, you know, each one of these facilities, the the Project Cypress and the Texas project, um, their aim, their goal is to capture one million tons of carbon per year, um, and the scale that we need, you know, to mitigate climate change is hundreds of times more than one million tons a year. The proposed industry in Louisiana um, is projected uh, to increase greenhouse gas emissions by hundred million metric tons over the next ten years. So. 1 million tons just seems like a very small amount for the amount of money that's being spent. One of the things that the community said is, why don't you just, one one person said, why don't you just buy us all electric vehicles? And another person said, why don't you use this money to build a new bridge over Lake Charles? So there's just a great deal of skepticism about this project because it's $600 million. And uh, people are wondering what the money, what what is this money going toward?
3: And when it comes to getting Project Cypress online, where does that project currently stand and how soon do these companies hope to begin operation?
2: So it's possible they could start constructing next year Project Cypress. Project Cypress and the Department of Energy has not come to an agreement for that those funds yet. So they have announced the award but the award has not been given so they're still working out negotiations on a lot of things including exactly where everything's going to be stored they don't they can't even say exactly where this facility is going to be built i understand that's going to be about 10 miles south of Venton, louisiana um west of sulfur so there's a lot of negotiation and in addition to that they're going to be regular community meetings about the project and based on the op- opposition at that meeting that i went to in november I think there might be some problems with the community. Um, The the Department of Energy people who were there were saying, you know, at every stage, at every point, there's going to be a go, no-go decision. Like, so if Project Cypress is not meeting its mandate under the Justice 40 initiative to make sure that communities of color or disadvantaged communities receive 40% of the benefit, then DOE could say no and say, no, you're not meeting those um, those requirements. I don't think it's a given, but I think that politically uh, there's a lot of appetite for this type of technology because it does seem like a, a moonshot of sort. like what's wrong with just capturing carbon dioxide from the air and storing it sounds like a perfect way to resolve the climate problem, right?
3: And, you know, Project Cypress is a direct air capture project, but we've heard about a lot of other projects popping up in Louisiana over the past few years that also involve capturing carbon and storing it underground. There's a super high-profile carbon capture and storage project in Lake Maurepol. Can you talk a little bit about how
2: these projects
3: are different?
2: Carbon capture in general breaks down to three parts. One is the actual capture of the carbon. Then you take that carbon. It's generally not going to be stored on site, where these facilities are. So it has to be piped somewhere. So that's another component of it. And then there will be the storage. And so the storage elements in all of them are the same as well as the pipeline element. It's just basically at what stage are you capturing that carbon? So carbon capture from industrial facilities aims to capture the carbon dioxide before it's released into the air. Um, That does seem to be a necessary component to reduce global warming. Um, Direct air capture is kind of a last mile kind of approach to reducing climate pollution by capturing what's already there.
3: Got it. So direct air capture and carbon capture and storage are different things, but similar concepts. And we do see another similarity in the sense that the Biden administration has embraced both of them as potential solutions to the climate crisis, and you even reported yesterday about a proposal that would allow companies to store carbon underneath U.S. Forest Service lands. I wonder if you can talk about if that proposal would intersect with any of the projects here in Louisiana, like Project Cypress.
2: It's possible. Um, so the U.S. Forest Service has a has a, a rulemaking that's an, a proposed rulemaking that would allow. Um, Carbon dioxide to be permanently stored under U.S. Forest Service lands. The U.S. Forest Service has never allowed a permanent use of its lands, but the push to reach net zero from the Biden administration would require that U.S. lands be used for carbon storage because the United States owns about 30% of the surface land. So, to reach the goals under the Biden administration's net zero plan, you need to store that carbon somewhere. And it's, you know, proponents of carbon capture see the US lands as a natural fit.
3: So lots to consider.
2: Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. It's really interesting because this week with the UN's COP in Dubai, there's a lot of focus on how great carbon capture is. And so I don't, you know, I I don't foresee anything in the near future stopping that momentum right now.
3: Well, Thank you for joining me, Pam. Pam Radke is an investigative reporter for the nonprofit climate newsroom, Floodlight. Sure, thanks.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, photographer Andrew Feiler, coastal desk reporter Hallie Parker, and investigative reporter for Floodlight, Pam Radke. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. With additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.